Welcome to the Upper Room Sermon of the Week. For more information, go to urfellowship.com. doing good? All right. It's like weird joke day here at the Upper Room Fellowship. I don't know any jokes, so (laughs) I don't know. That's not funny. I'm just saying I don't know any jokes. I can't say any. I wish I had one. I don't. So good to see you today, week till Christmas or Christmas Eve. I asked you this last week, but how many people have their shopping done? Yeah, still one person. All right. About, about the same amount as last week. Good. <clears throat> All right. So we're in a series called Dinner with Jesus, where we're kind of zooming in on some of the, the dinners and the meals and the feasts that Jesus was at. And he was at a lot of them. Like, I, didn't, I never realized until I got into this and started digging into this topic, how many stories of Jesus revolve around meals and feasts of some sort. But today we're going to look at <clears throat> the wedding feast at Cana. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, you can go to John 2, 1 through 11. John 2, 1 through 11 says, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So this is a story of Jesus at the wedding feast at Cana, a pretty familiar story, uh, but it's also kind of weird, okay? Because it's basically a miraculous solution to a catering mistake. And why in the world was this Jesus' first miracle? In the book of John, there's a series of miracles, and they're called signs, the sign miracles. You see that in verse 11, but it says, it says, this was the first of the signs. That's important. It means that the miracles of Jesus weren't just displays of power. They weren't just to prove, hey, look what I can do. But these miracles were symbolic. They point to who Jesus is and what he came to do. And Jesus' first sign was not feeding the poor. It wasn't healing the sick or raising the dead. It was keeping a party going. So what does that say about it? And also, Jesus does this miracle in the set of jars. These these jars used by the Jews for cleaning, for ceremonial cleaning. What's that point to? And also, what's this strange conversation with his mother mean? So so first, what what do the jars point to? 
Okay, it says in verse 6, nearby stood six water jars, stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. <clears throat> Excuse me. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. So weddings at this time in history were a big deal. Okay? They were like seven-day all-out bashes. All right? I've been to some parties. I'm sure you have. I've never been to a seven-day-in-a-row party. And so even though this isn't a life-and-death issue here, for some reason, we don't know, they run out of wine. So either they, there were some very heavy drinkers at the party, or they severely miscalculated how much they would need. So the problem was, especially in those days, the wine was what made the feast a feast. So this was a, this was a major problem, because this was an honor and shame culture. So in, in an honor and shame culture, to bring dishonor to your family and your people was a big deal. So there was going to be guilt and shame heaped on this teenage couple getting married. And Jesus rescues them. There's a ton of symbolism here in the fact that he cho- chooses to make the wine in these jars. These jars that Jewish people usually use for ceremonial washing. So, so at this point in history, there are all these ways and times which Israelites had to, they had to wash and they had to, to bathe themselves in these sacrifices that they had to perform so that they could be cleansed from sin. And what Jesus say, is saying by making the wine in these jars is, I have come to bring in reality what the ceremonies of the Jews only pointed to. I have come to bring atonement and cleansing for sin and to rescue you from guilt and shame. See, we all live with a degree of shame. And here's how I know. Who here would volunteer to have all your thoughts just appear in a little bubble above your head all the time? Just have everything you think broadcast to the world. You're talking to someone and ding, those shoes are very ugly. You're having dinner with someone and, ding, this is boring. Like, I wonder how soon I can leave. Does anybody have such pure thoughts they think no one would go, wow, you are not a nice person? No, nobody can live with that, with all your thoughts, the thoughts of your heart and mind all being published. So to some degree, we're ashamed of who we are because we know if everyone always knew what was going on inside us, it would be a disaster. There's a little hypocrite filter inside us that goes, I cannot say that out loud. They would know who I really am. And that means all we, we all know at a certain level, we're not what we should be. Jesus comes and says, whatever guilt, whatever shame, no matter what you've done, I can cleanse it. That's what I came to do. That's the first thing. Okay, so secondly, what does this exchange with his mother mean? It says, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. So he calls his mom woman, which I don't know. You might be going, where well, are you going to tell me in Greek it means something else? Nope. It means exactly what it looks like. It means woman. So it's not wrong, exactly. It's not mean, but it's a cold way to talk to your mother. Why? Is he in a bad mood? Well, Jesus was later tortured to death, and being tortured to death, I'm guessing, puts you in a bad mood. 
But even when he was being tortured to death, you never saw him say a false word. No, I think something, something's troubling him. I think he's distracted, honestly. And he tells us what it is. He says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. So in the book of John, the word hour always means crucifixion, the hour of his death. Whenever the hour is talked about, it's the hour of his death. So during this wedding, he's thinking about his death. She comes to him and says, they run out of wine. And he says, I'm not ready to die yet. What? Excuse me? Seems like a bit of a non sequitur. Why does the situation make him think about his death? Why does this request to keep the wedding feast going, why does this all make him think about his death? It's kind of a hard question to answer, but but follow me here. In Matthew 9, the religious leaders are complaining that Jesus' disciples never fast. So John the Baptist's disciples, they were always fasting, trying to get closer to God. They were always had hollow cheeks and looked kind of worn out. But Jesus' followers never fasted. Like we we talked about in this series, they were always eating and drinking. And people said, you guys aren't very spiritual. Why don't you fast? And Jesus says in Matthew 9, he says, why should the friends of the bridegroom fast when the bridegroom is still with them? So he calls himself the bridegroom. When you get to the end of the book of Revelation, you see a vision about how history is going to end. Do you know how it's going to end? It's going to end in a wedding feast. Jesus' wedding day. Revelation 21 talks about the people of God, those of us who believe, dressed beautifully as a bride is dressed for her husband. And the Bible says, blessed is he who is invited to the wedding, lamb of, uh, the wedding supper of the Lamb. Jesus Christ is going to have a wedding day, and this is how history is going to end according to the Bible. On that day, all of us who have learned to love Jesus will have a feast to end all feasts, and it will go on forever. Jesus has a wedding day, and the history of the universe is going to end with this wedding day. So here's Mary saying, please bring joy to this wedding feast, and he's thinking about his own wedding. And he knows that he's going to have to go through the hour. He's going to have to go to the cross and die. That's what he's thinking about. Because he talks about his hour. So during this joyful wedding feast, Jesus is feeling sorrow. So that in times of sorrow and sadness in our lives, we can have joy. Here's what I mean. Stay with me here. What does a wine point to? Remember this. They didn't have wine glasses at the time. They didn't have glass. So wine was drunk from a cup. There's only one other place near the end of Jesus' life where he talks about wine cups twice, one figuratively and one literally. So in the Garden of Gethsemane, he knows he's going to the cross. He's praying. He's sweating. He's bleeding. And he says, Father, there's any way out of this. Let this cup pass from me. He's talking figuratively because the cup he's talking about is the cup of wrath. It's divine justice. Look at sin and evil and injustice in the world. What does it deserve? It deserves punishment. It's the punishment we deserve. And Jesus says, is there some way I can get out of drinking that cup? If not, not my will but thine be done, he says, and then he goes to the cross. But just before that, he had held another literal cup of real wine and he said, This is the cup of my blood, and I won't drink it again until I drink it in the kingdom with you. This means Jesus drinks the cup of wrath of God towards sin so that we can drink the cup of blessing. His agony brought us joy. 
This idea that Jesus' death brings joy, I think, is the theme of the story. I think that's what the sign is talking about. Why is this the first sign? What does it mean for the first sign of Jesus' mission? Which, when you launch something, like a campaign or like a revolution like Jesus is doing, the first thing you do is so important because it is the thing that is at the center of your message. It is telling us who he is and what he came to do. Like I said, he doesn't raise somebody from the dead. He doesn't heal a sick person. He doesn't preach a sermon. He doesn't call anyone into discipleship. What's he do? He produces 150 gallons of amazing wine to keep a party going. He replaces guilt and shame with joy. That's his first sign. Jesus is saying, I come, yes, I come to bring commandments, to bring humbling, you know, to bring codes of conduct, to bring all that stuff. But ultimately, what am I here to do? Where am I driving this whole thing? Jesus says, towards joy. I come to bring joy. Have you ever thought about why it is over and over in the Bible that it uses sensory language to get across what God offers us? Psalm 34 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. We know God is good, but I want you to taste and see that God is good. 1 Peter 2 says, now you have tasted that God is gracious. We, we know God is gracious, a God of grace, but I want you to taste his graciousness. Why all this language? As Christians, you and I are called to go beyond just believing into experience. The Bible says just to know God is loving and know God is powerful. That's great, but you have to taste. You have to see, you have to grasp his love and joy. Jonathan Edwards said this. He says, there's a difference between having an opinion that God is holy and gracious and having a sense of the loveliness and beauty of that holiness and grace. Just as there's a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. It's one thing to say, I know God loves me, but have you tasted? Have you actually had the life-transforming reality of it? If you say, oh, I know God loves me, and yet you still live with a life with guilt and shame, you haven't tasted if you say, well, I know God is wise and powerful, but you're always anxious. If his wisdom and love doesn't overshadow all the threats, so you actually live your life with boldness, you haven't, you haven't tasted. You have to taste, you have to see, you have to grasp his love and his power and his joy. Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man opens, I will come into him and I'll, and, uh, I'll eat with him. Not just I'll visit with him. No, Jesus says, I want to come to bring you joy. I come to bring you the experience of God's love and the experience of his reality. Reality that so shapes you through joy that you don't live like you used to live. That's what, it, that's what he brings. So what's this mean for us? What's the lesson? The lesson is, do whatever he tells you. Why did Mary tell Jesus about the problem to start with? We don't really know what Mary knew about her son at this point, but I mean, she knew he wasn't normal, right? You mamas think your baby's pretty special, but you didn't have an angel show up at your house and have a conversation about little Junior, right? Angel visitations about your baby aren't normal. She knew he was something special. It's hard to imagine she had this all figured out, but she knew enough about his greatness to go talk to him, and she knew enough about his greatness not to get upset at him, 
not to be offended by it. She says, hey, Jesus, they've run out of wine. And Jesus goes, woman, why are you telling me? And what she could have said is, I'm your mother. And you better lose the tood, <laughs> Mr. Mr. Son of God. How dare you talk to me like that? She do that? Nope. She knew enough to go to the people around him and say, see that guy over there? Do whatever he tells you. He sometimes acts and says stuff in ways nobody can understand, but I want you to know he knows what he's doing. Do what he tells you. And I say to you, do what he tells you. He knows us, and he loves us, and he knows true joy is only found in him. And any wine, except for the wine of Jesus Christ, will run out. What is it that brings you joy in your life? Is it your career? Is it a person, your family, a cause, a hobby? What's the joy in your life? If it's not Jesus, it will run out. <clears throat> There's a guy named C.S. Lewis. I think I may have mentioned him before. For those who are not here, I talk about him all the time. He's one of my favorite authors. He said, he said, this is a quote, he said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. He's saying that you and I, we settle for playing in the mud when God's going, let's go to the beach. It's better there. Let's get out of here and go to the beach. Let's go to the beach where there's sand and waves and danger and passion and life. Let's go stand in awe of the ocean. You ever been to the beach? Lake Erie doesn't count. Have you ever seen 15-foot waves and stood on the beach and felt them crash in? And God's going, come on, let's go to the beach. And we're going, ah, mud. Mud's good, I like mud. And he's going, no, there's, there's power there, and it's scary, but it's good scary. It's awesome, come on. And we're like, but I, I made it into like the shape of a pie. I made this mud into a shape of a pie. I like mud. I think that's exactly where so many of us are. We treat God as if he's the enemy of our joy. He isn't the enemy of our joy. In him is the fullness of joy. We do whatever he tells us. In Proverbs 8, we see wisdom is speaking in the first person. Wisdom says, I was with him in the beginning, and through me he created all things. Then it actually says, I was delighted in mankind, and I was filled with delight every day. There's a Hebrew word in there. Sahek. Sahek. You can try it out. You've got to do the Sahek. All right? All right. This is a word that means to delight or frolic. It means to jump up and down and clap your hands. Here's Jesus Christ using this on him, for himself. This is who God is. He made the world and you and me in joy and then clapped his hands and jumped up and down. And maybe you're saying, well, the idea of Jesus frolicking and jumping around with joy doesn't seem very dignified, doesn't seem very majestic. Maybe you haven't tasted and seen. Because this is who God is. 
In Isaiah 25, 6, it's talking about the great wedding feast. It says, On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples. The sheet that covers all nations, he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. That's coming for us who believe. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, help us to know the joy of really grasping all we have through your Son. We pray that you would bring more joy into our lives, Lord. Lord, we thank you for showing us ways in which we can sit down and feast with your Son even now. Even though all we get now is just a foretaste of that great feast, the new heavens and new earth, we ask that you would help us to begin to experience some of that so we can have our lives shaped from the inside out by the experience of your love and your grace and your goodness. Lord, build joy in us. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. The ministry team can come forward, and I would just encourage you, man, if you don't feel a lot of joy in your life, you don't have a lot of joy in your life, let's get prayed for. Come and get prayed for. Let's not go into Christmas with with low joy, all right? Amen. Free to go.